every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday's programme for the 12th of July. This is Peter Lewis with the original Money Talk and one of Hong Kong's most listened to financial podcasts. As well as listening at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also find the show on Facebook, Instagram and also on Threads now by going to Peter Lewis Money Talk. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, President Xi Jinping has called for a greater opening up of the Chinese economy to focus on foreign cooperation in areas including trade and investment. CCTV quoted President Xi as saying in building a new development pattern and promoting structural opening up, key areas of foreign exchange and cooperation such as investment, trade and financial innovation should be focused on. China's Global Times claimed yesterday that there are no deflation risks in China as consumer prices are expected to rise in the third quarter with more policy stimulus to be rolled out to reinvigorate consumption activities. The commentary came a day after China's National Bureau of Statistics reported that consumer prices were zero in June and producer prices fell by the most in seven and a half years. Microsoft has moved closer to securing its 75 billion US dollar purchase of Activision Blizzard after a US federal judge rejected the Federal Trade Commission's request for an injunction to halt the deal and the UK's competition watchdog signalled it was open to discussing the merger it had previously rejected. Foxconn has pledged to go ahead with its chip-making plant in India a day after quitting a joint venture with local partner Vedanta. A Taiwanese electronics manufacturing company said on Tuesday that it was committed to India and the country uh, sees the country successfully establishing a robust semiconductor manufacturing ecosystem. The company added that it was actively reviewing the landscape for optimal partners. On today's programme, I'm joined by Hao Hong, Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group, and with a view from Japan is Nick Smith, Strategist at CNSA in Tokyo. U.S. stocks rose on Tuesday as investors welcomed comments from Federal Reserve officials suggesting U.S. interest rates may be nearing their peak. The S&P 500 rose 0.7% to end at 4,439. The Dow advanced 317 points, or 0.9%, to close at 34,261. The Nasdaq Composite gained 0.6% to 13,761. Activision Blizzard's shares jumped 10% after a federal judge denied the FTC's request for a preliminary injunction to stop Microsoft's acquisition of the video gaming company. Treasuries were mixed in a quiet day of trading. The two-year Treasury yield was up two basis points to 4.89%. The yield on the 10-year Treasury was trading two basis points lower at 3.98%. And it's worth noting that three-month bill yields are back at the highs of late May in anticipation of another Fed rate hike. You can lend to the US government for three months at 5.44%. And that leaves the spread between the earnings yield on the S&P 500 and three-month bills, which are already at the worst since the dot-com bust at a fresh low. The earnings yield on the US tech sector is more than 200 basis points lower than the yield on three-month bills, and that's comparable to the end of the last tech bubble in the year 2000. The US dollar index touched a two-month low as traders reacted to a flurry of commentary from Fed officials, which hinted that the end of the rate-hiking cycle may be approaching. 
Sterling rose to a 15-month high of 1.29 and a third against the dollar after stronger-than-expected UK wage growth added more pressure on the Bank of England to keep on raising interest rates. The yen continued its recent strength, advancing 0.7% to 140.35 against the dollar. The Chinese yuan extended gains into a fourth day, rising a third of a percent to 7.209 renminbi in Shanghai. And Chinese stock markets advanced following the announcement of property support measures. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index extended its gains from Monday, rising 100 points or 1% to 18,660. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index surged as much as 3.2% before giving up all of its gains to end the day unchanged. And the tech index climbed for a second day, rising 1.5% as investors were optimistic that the three-year regulatory crackdown on platform companies was over. Alibaba climbed 2% and Tencent added 1.5%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite gained 0.6% to 3,221. Goldman Sachs reported yesterday that global hedge funds turned net buyers of Chinese stocks for the first time in seven weeks between June the 30th and July the 6th as they covered short positions. And this morning, futures markets are projecting the Hang Seng will open about 50 points or a third of a percent higher. You can get the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And I'm joined now by Hao Hong, who is Chief Economist at the Grow Investment Group. Morning, Hao. Good morning, Peter. Uh, let me ask you first of all about the Chinese uh, economy. President Xi Jinping yesterday called for greater opening up of the Chinese economy to focus on foreign cooperation in areas including trade and investment. The Global Times claim there's no deflation risks in China for the full year. Um, they say consumer prices are expected to rise in the third quarter with more pom- policy stimulus to be rolled out. Of course, how that doesn't really chime uh, with the data that we saw, I did it earlier this week, which suggests deflation is a real risk. Do you think that's a concern now that we should be worried about? Yeah, I think it's a reflection of how weak the domestic demand is, you know, despite uh, record uh, lending uh, statistics that we saw uh, in June, you know, the uh, uh, consumer inflation still trending down. And also in the upstream sectors, you know, the uh, uh, inflation PPI has been uh, de- decelerating for like for some time now. So now mm. it's like around five minus five percent. All right. So th- there's a persistent uh, uh, this deflationary trend uh, in the upstream sector, and then you know downstream uh, is also uh, going into a deflationary uh, zone uh, because of weak demand. So I think you know, even though you know we're hoping for uh, more stimulus in the third quarter, and therefore you know it could jut uh, the uh, uh, CPI out of this um, deflationary danger, but you know the the fact is that monetary policy works with a lag, right? Mm-hmm. So and also you know because. Previously, we had record uh, lending, and it's still not enough to help uh, the uh, CPI to come back uh, to uh, inflationary sort of a mild inflationary environment. You know, so you know, I think you know we're just hoping for too much. That you know, if we're betting that you know there will be more stimulus, therefore you know the CPI will come back. Why is uh, demand so weak on the mainland? I've heard explanations comparing it to Japan, the balance sheet recession that Japan had in the early 1990s, where people were more focused on reducing debt, cut back on their, their spending uh, to, to do that. Is that, what's, is that partly what's going on, that the property market mm. uh, slump is having yeah. a real impact on people's sort of psychology, if you like? 
Yeah, I disagree with the uh, consensus assessment on you know the uh, balance sheet recession explanation of what's going on right now. Uh, if, you know, just now I mentioned that lending is still at record high. I you know we just had, I think, you know, one of the highest June in recent years in terms of new loans uh, made by commercial banks. Therefore, someone is uh, boring. Mm. And also, I think the uh, consensus is really focusing on the uh, household uh, of of China, who is really paying down debt, you know, because in, in the past three years, uh, they have leveraged up so much. Uh, and also, you know, they 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 brought up quite a few of the properties and now they are finding it, you know, a little hard to uh, to to buy even more properties. Right? So on the on onto their existing portfolio of properties. Uh, so you know the households are, are retrenching, uh, but then uh, corporate sector, uh, on the other hand, uh, is is borrowing. And also in in the uh, months of June, you know, we're seeing uh, for more than forty percent of the new lending is going into the uh, the longer term loans. Right. So which is also a good sign, you know, meaning uh, uh, corporates are making longer term commitment, you know, to expand the business. So I think we, you know, given all the information that we had, you know, it, it's too. Uh, it, it's almost like wrong to conclude that you know we're in a balance sheet recession right now. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's very different from the Japanese uh, setup uh, thirty years ago. But then, having said that, you know, I'm not saying that we're not going to enter into a a uh, balance sheet recession. I'm just saying that right now, you know, with all the numbers that we have, it does, doesn't support the consensus uh, posit of you know we're you know we are in a in a balance sheet recession. And I think, you know, also uh, one prominent feature with the Japanese uh, uh, balance sheet recession 30 years ago was that, you know, it has a real estate bubble burst. You know, one can argue that uh, Chinese property price is very high and therefore, you know, it's, uh, you know, at risk of bursting. Right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I, I think, but, you know, right now we're just not seeing dramatic uh, real, real estate price decline across the board. And therefore, you know, the necessary condition for a financial recession is, is just not here just yet. I suppose it depends where you look, doesn't it, in, in terms of the housing markets. If you look at tier three and tier four cities, then things look pretty grim. But if you look in the tier one cities, the, the prices seem to be holding up pretty well. Mm, yeah, I think Japan is going through the same sort of uh, process in the past uh, 30 years, you know, as it work off its uh, uh, real estate bubble. Uh, right now, you know, Tokyo uh, property prices back to where it was uh, 30 years ago at the peak of the bubble. But then, you know, many lesser sort of developed, lesser popular uh, cities, uh, they're like, you know, six, still 60, 40 to 60% down, you know, from the peak. Uh, so that, that is telling you that, um, you know, core sort of location, uh, core metropolis, you know, with the attraction, you know, to attract population growth, you know, they will have price support. And I think, you know, China is more or less the same. You know, tier one city, we're still seeing, you know, price are, are relatively firm. And also, you know, people are still buying. They're not, you know, completely stopping. They're still buying uh, as, you know, new immigrants, you know, going into the cities from, from other lesser developed cities, also uh, from a rural area. So I think, you know, experience told us that uh, the the area uh, of the of this um, tier one metropolis will continue to expand. And it, I think, you know, Beijing, has like 30 million people, Shanghai has 30 million people, I think Guangzhou has like 25 million people, uh, Shenzhen more or less the same. And these cities are set to expand even bigger. All right, so I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, um, you know, in, in the next five, 10 years, you know, they get to the 50 million uh, uh, population in size. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so that means you know a lot more demand for properties in these cities, but then it also means that less, uh, much less demand, you know, for properties in other cities. So, what do you make then of um, the, the the proposals or the announcements to try and support some of these beleaguered property developers, with the regulators putting pressure on banks to try and support them and extend um, outstanding debt? Uh, and trust loans, give them a, an extension. Is this going to make a significant difference? Mm, not really. I mean, if you if you look at the Chinese property policy, right, so it always focuses on the supply side of the equation, right? So, you know, right now it's trying to help developers to finish all the buildings and, and give it to, you know, the buyers. Uh, so, you know, in a sense, you know, it's trying to help uh, developers to, you know, sort of finish the job. Mm. And, and also, you know, because many of the developers uh, are having cash flow problems because of uh, uh, sales slowdown, right? So they can't recycle the cash as fast as they used to be. And they, therefore, uh, you know, they, you know the, there, there are problems with their cash flows. And therefore, you know, the central bank is trying to help, you know, which is admirable. Uh, so, you know, I think... It, it, this is not a new policy, by the way. Uh, you know, I think ever since late last year, I think from November, December, you've, we've already seen uh, the PBOC trying to sort of extend loans for uh, uh, telling commercial banks to extend loans for developers. Uh, you know, telling to uh, t- telling them to sort of uh, uh, temporarily put aside uh, you know these loan issues and you know try them try to help them as as, as much as possible. But you know, it's really focusing on the supply side and trying to. To bail out the uh, uh, the developers, uh, but I think you know what we are facing right now is the problem is substantially larger than the supply side problem. You know we have a demand side problem, you know, which is you know the issues that I mentioned just now. You know we have strong demand in the T one cities, but then you know for lesser developed cities, you know people are actually moving out. Mm. But um, what does this mean then for the banks that are you know that are extending that loans? We've had this. Uh, infamous sort of reports from Goldman Sachs, didn't we, last week, a rather bearish report on on Chinese banks, which uh, which was quite pessimistic about their exposure uh, to, to local government uh, financing vehicles and, and their debt. What does this all mean for the banks? Is this an area that we should be concerned about? Well, uh, you know, the LGFB has been a sort of a, a dangling, uh, dangling uh, issue uh, on top of many of the Chinese banks, right? So because, you know, historically, you know, how the local government, you know, get to develop their, their, their business is really, you know, through land sales, you know, because in, in 1998, there was a tax reform that, you know, make the local government submit all the tax, most of the tax revenue to the central government. And mm-hmm. then at the same time, they get to get, that can, get to keep the uh, the land sales proceed, you know, so land sales proceed sometimes can be, you know, as high as 100% of the local government uh, revenue source. Uh, so right now, the problem is that once again, you know, because property sales is slowing down, no one is buying, you know, a big block of land. Mm-hmm. So on a, on an already very low base last year, local government, uh, you know, is finding them uh, land sales, the land sales proceeds, uh, you know, 30 to, 30 to 50% lower than last year, you know, which is a very low base to compare with. Right? So, you know, therefore, you know, you have a, a, a revenue problem, right? So many of the local governments are now, you know, in deficit, and and some of them find it difficult to uh, to pay out uh, uh, salaries to to public servants. Mm. And so how I think you know it's it's substantially larger, yeah, substantially larger than many people could imagine. You know the uh, uh, the the issue. So I think you know the PBOC can extend long terms, uh, low interest rate. You know, telling uh, telling the uh, uh, the commercial banks not to recognize. Uh, the LGFV as bad debts, you know, so so as not to impair, 
the commercial land, uh, bank's ability to lend, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there are like a whole series of action needs to be taken. Uh, but I think right now, I think the, the Goldman Sachs report really is, you know, to raise an alarm bell. Uh, on, you know, uh, this issue that has been around for years. Mm. I mean, it certainly did raise alarm bells because we had even Chinese state media sort of chiming in and, and saying that, you know, the report was unrealistic and people shouldn't be focusing on uh, the non-performing loans at Chinese banks, which, of course, then makes people immediately focus on them and wondering, well, what, where, why is there a problem here? Yeah, well, you know, the media obviously, you know, trying to shore up, you know, confidence, right? Uh, so... You know, you know, trying to help out the uh, the bondholders. You know, tell them to sort of, you know, take it easy sort of way. Uh, so I, you know, I wouldn't, you know, pay too much attention to you know what the state media says. Yeah. So what should the government do? We've got an economy that's uh, that's faltering. The domestic demand um, is, is is falling. Uh, exports uh, are under under pressure. We've still got the problems in the property sector. We've got signs of uh, the economy entering into deflation. A lot of people waiting uh, for stimulus, but so far uh, no big announcements. Do you think we will see maybe at the Politburo meeting some sort of big bazooka be rolled out? What what do you think the Chinese government could mm. do? Yeah, no, I think, you know, people are really focusing on, you know, the numbers are not up to expectation, but, you know, the numbers are substantially better than last year. You know, if, you, if you're traveling now in China, so I've, I've been spending, you know, weeks of my time here in, in, in mainland. Mm -hmm. I'm calling from Shandong, you know, which is a, a tier three, a tier three city uh, um, uh, in China, right? So I'm seeing like a very good, strong uh, foot traffic across the board. You know, hotels are really booked up. Uh, restaurants are like really busy and all that, right? So it's substantially better than last year. So I think one should focusing on you know how much marginal improvement we're making this year mm -hmm. uh, uh, instead of how uh, disappointing uh, that <laughs> the, the, the the economic data has been, you know, because we have very high expectation for reopening, mm -hmm. right? So I think that you know one has to make such a distinction, and also I think over the you know last last ten years, well, you know, in particular. Uh, you know, in the last 10 years, whenever there's, you know, slow down, then, you know, we try to step step on the gas and, and try to pump stimulus into the into the system. And I don't think that's the right way to do it. Right? So I think for the for the past for the past 30, 40 years, you know, China has been, you know, focusing on a, a relentless uh, uh, growth target every year. Uh, you know, and, and and move all resources so that we can sort of you know protect and then get to the to the growth target every year. Uh, but you know, it's very uh, it's a very different approach to economic management uh, from the other uh, economies. Uh, from, you know, who are focusing on inflation uh, and unemployment, right, mm -hmm. and and, mm -hmm. and financial system stability, right. So I think you know, if we could sort of move away, you know, from a growth. A focus model, you know, into a more sort of, uh, you know, the uh, price stability uh, and financial stability and employment stability model, then I think, you know, it, it would be more beneficial uh, to the Chinese economy. So I think right now, you know, all this, all this disappointment is coming from, you know, the fact that, you know, we get used to a rapid uh, growth model and, and then suddenly, you know, last year we were, we were going at 3% and this year 5% and people sort of, you know, finding hard to get used to. So I think right now, you know, it's it's not a problem of, you know, rolling out bazooka, you know, to stimulate the economy. And then later on, you know, we deal with the excess capacity and all the debt issues. But more importantly, you know, how best to re-engineer the growth model going forward and also, you know, shift the mentality, you know, from a growth-only model into a, a more balanced, uh, all-inclusive 
growth model. Mm. So investors seem to be waiting for two things to happen. The first one is an improvement on the geopolitical uh, fronts. Now, President Xi Jinping called yesterday for, uh, for the economy to focus more on foreign cooperation in areas including trade and investment. And of course, we had Janet Yellen's trip uh, at the end of last week to, uh, to, to Beijing. Do you think as a result of that, and maybe as a result of what President Xi Jinping is saying now, um, that the geopolitical situation is improving and that tensions between um, the, the US and China, even if, you know, even if they haven't gone away, at least there's a flaw underneath the relationship now. Mm, well, there has to be. I mean, China is still, you know, the most important trade trading partner with the US. The US trade uh, deficit against China is a record high. And mm. also China is, uh, you know, one of the largest uh, US treasury holders, treasury bond holders. And therefore, you know, it pays to have a good relationship between the, the two countries. And, you know, I said, I know that, you know, uh, in the technology arena, you know, people trying to rival each other, you know, to get ahead and in terms of AI uh, and cloud computing and all that, and also semi- the semiconductor industry. Um, but, you know, you know the, the thing is that, you know, um, it's understandable that, you know, the U.S. trying to, you know, protect its intellectual property, but then at the same time, you know, because... Uh, the Chinese uh, economy has grown into a substantial size. And just now, you know, we mentioned that, you know, we need to find, you know, new growth drivers uh, mm-hmm. for the economy to move forward, right? So, you know, obviously, uh, in the future, uh, technology would be, you know, a, a sort of a, a big part of Chinese growth model. So I think, you know, even though there are like, you know, curves, uh, you know, in, uh, in terms of uh, technology exports, you know, from the US side, but, you know, it, it would be hard to imagine you know, for all these curbs to, to stop, you know, China from you know, developing its own technology. And also, you know, in the past, you know, 10 years, we've seen some technology giants emerging from the Chinese economy, for example, Tencent, Alibaba, Huawei, you know, just to name a few. And so, you know, one has to realize that it will be like really hard to sort of, you know, stop uh, uh, one country to develop its own technology. Uh, so, you know, I think, you know, the, I think the, uh, the, the dialogue uh, should be sort of resumed uh, after Yellen's visit and also after Blinken's visit. And also, you know, the, the more dialogues between the two sides, the more understanding and therefore, you know, the, the better relationship. And also it would be best for the global economy as well, you know, as global central banks are tightening uh, monetary policy, right? So, you know, economy bound to slow down, you know, mm. one way or the other, right? So if two of the biggest economies are focusing and, you know, having go at each other, right? So I think it would be harmful uh, for, for for global development. So I think, you know, I think both sides understand this. I think, you know, uh, surely there'll be more dialogues uh, going on, you know, trying to understand each other's issues and, you know, maybe, you know, get to a middle ground, you know, in, in some of the key issues that we're facing. And, and what do you make of the, uh, the the crackdown that we've been seeing over the last three years on the big tech technology companies? There's a feeling that maybe that's come to an end with this $1 billion um, fine, almost $1 billion on, um, on Ant Group. Is that your assessment as well, that maybe this three-year sort of regulatory oversight of the big platform companies is now over and there's going to be more support in particular for private enterprises to develop and grow because they've been under pressure a lot, haven't they, recently? Yeah, I think those are like the final verdict for, you know, many of the big tech firms, you know, the, the fine is huge and also it, it impaired the valuation uh, of, of many of these tech giants. You know, now they're like 80, 80% down from its peak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's it's good news in a way, but, you know, you know, having said that, you know, people interpreted it as, 
well, this is the end of the uh, regulatory uh, uh, blow to uh, the, the big tech giant. But, you know, the fact is that, you know, the big tech giant has already slowed down way before this, right? So in terms of the sales growth now, it's a single digit. For example, if you, if you look at Alibaba's uh, sales growth, uh, Pinduoduo sales growth, you know, it's, it's you know, at, at its lowest in years. Uh, and also, you know, in terms of how uh, they, they're using their cash, you know, to develop new technology, uh, you know, there's slowing down as well. And also, you know, many of the big firms are, you know, trying to pick up, you know, in a way to unlock value for shareholders. But then at the same time, you know, because of, of this uh, breaking up, you know, you may get less synergy between groups, right? So development will be substantially low, slower than before, you know, in the past 10 years, I think, you know, can be kept, kept, uh, characterized as, you know, one of the breakneck uh, speed development for, you know, many of the, the big tech firms in terms of technology. But hmm. now, you know, noticeably, it's slowing down. Right? So, you know, I think it's good in a, in a bad. But you know, if you think that you know this uh, this uh, big fine is going to put a full stop uh, into the you know the, the regulatory actions against the big tech giants, I think you know it's it's a little hasty to draw this kind of conclusion. You know, because the regular regulation uh, will be ongoing, and and also you know way before this, I think the big tech giants have already slowed down. Okay. Well, let me ask you finally what this all means for the markets, for the local markets here in Hong Kong, for the mainland China markets, which have really been under the cosh, haven't they, over the last few weeks um, by these problems and the slowdown in the economy. Also, we've seen foreign investors really uh, pull out of the market in uh, in droves. Where where does it go from here? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the foreign investors has been, you know, selling down uh, their Ch- the Chinese holdings for, for months now. Uh, I think mostly for compliance reason, and also many are rotating their portfolio to the Japanese equities, who is you know showing very promising returns uh, and having you know one of the best years in thirty years. <laughs> so you know you can't blame them. You know, they're like money to be had in in another market. You know that is uh, that is uh, uh, developing itself into you know the the alternative uh, center for a new supply chain. So uh, I think, um, you know, it's understandable, but then having said all that, uh, the Chinese market, both Hong Kong and, and Shanghai, uh, already improved substantially from last year, late last year, right? So we're, we're, we're like, you know, 20% higher, well, more than 20 to 30% higher than uh, last October, you know, where we see the lows for this cycle. And I think that low will hold uh, 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 in this mm. round. So even though now, I think, you know, Chinese equities, look attractive you know because sentiment issue because of compliance issue because uh, because you know the, the attraction of a, a new competitor on the horizon uh, but I think over time you know people will come around to realize that you know growth is still here right so just now we, we discussed many uh, things about Chinese growth going forward you know property problems municipal bonds problems etc etc they all have solutions I think you know in, in the past 40 years you know China has stumbling uh, its way you know to uh, to uh, to where it is today now. And I think going forward, you know, one shouldn't doubt, you know, China's uh, uh, ability to, to innovate uh, uh, its way out of out of this um, core mile. So I would say that I think right now, yeah, you know, the market is under pressure, but I think, you know, for longer term investors, you know, it pays to take another look at the Chinese equities. How it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for your thoughts there. Very interesting indeed. That's Hao Hong, who is Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group. Peter Lewis is Money Talk.
I'm joined now by Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Jay. Um, I wanted to let you um, have a piece of information that we have here from, from China, actually. According to Goldman Sachs' prime services unit, uh, hedge funds sold Chinese equities in June for a fifth consecutive month. They've now unwound more than 70% of their buying during the initial reopening euphoria that we had here between November and January. And what we've found is that, or what Goldman says, is that that capital is being deployed to Japan. It seems like, doesn't it, that a, a, a big part of this rally that we've been seeing in, in Japanese stocks is being driven uh, by money coming out of China. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Um, I, I was surprised. If you look at the uh, the movements in the market so far this year, you see China coming down, Japan, Korea, um, Taiwan going up, a uh, lot of money going into Japan. So um, $71 billion so far this year. Uh, oh, sorry, from the lows of, uh, of late March. The interesting thing I thought was that um, if this was a um, a geopolitical, uh, not China trade, then you would have thought the money would have come from uh, from the US, and it hasn't. So, as April and May um, flows into Japan, seventy six percent came from Europe, and uh, most of the remainder from um, from Asia X, which was not what I expected to see. Mm. And, and it's interesting that we've got clients who are concerned about the sort of the mix of geopolitics and slowing Chinese growth who are, who are moving investments out. We've been seeing this call for um, MSCI Asia ex-China funds, sort of mirroring what we saw, wasn't it, back in the 1990s when we first started to see MS China Asia ex-Japan funds. But people now seem to be calling for funds that specifically sort of underweight or have no exposure to China. It's a um, it's an odd trend. I mean, obviously, for for most people, uh, Japan and China are in d- different buckets. Japan's uh, an easy bucket, and uh, uh, and China's different. But um, but nevertheless, yes, there does seem to be something of that trend. And what about foreign investors into Japan? We've talked many times on this program about how underweight they are. Are they now catching up, or are they still underweight despite all of this buying that we've been seeing? Well, I mean, I think if you look at the uh, the numbers from um, the f- first week of uh, June 15 through to um, uh, the end of March this year, um, foreigners sold broadly $250 billion. And then of that uh, $71 billion worth of buying, uh, about a third was uh, was seasonal. So let's say uh, they sold 250 and bought uh, 50. So I think the overall feeling is that they're, uh, they're underweight Japan um quite a lot at the moment. Mm. So do you have a sense, I know it's very hard to to put targets on these things, but, you know, the topics has had a good run, Uh, so has the Nikkei 225. How far do you think it can go? Do you think I'll I'll ever see again that peak in the Nikkei 225, which was, what, just above uh, 38,000, wasn't it, back in uh, the end of 1989, just as I moved out to Japan, in fact? Am I ever going to see that peak again? Ah, uh, happy days. Um, I think. Well, obviously, the um, the eighty nine peak was uh, a bubble that made um, nineteen twenty nine look like a walk in the park. I mean, as a percentage of GDP, GDP uh, the bubble was uh, was four times as large. So, in a way, you might say, I don't know what the Americans were fussing about. Now, this is a real bubble. Um, I-, I think 
we're coming back now. If you take your valuations and you adjust for uh, the difference in uh, in interest rates, then Japan really is, in terms of earnings yield minus bond yield, Japan is still a, a very cheap market. I just don't want to uh, to give the story of Japan as cheap because I think it's uh, so very much more than that. So if you use uh, cyclically uh, adjusted PE, um, taking out the effects of uh, 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 that cyclicality, it's, um, it still looks very, very cheap, um, 20 times as opposed to 30 times for the US, and we're not even factoring in um, the, the interest rate differential. But it's got a, uh, a growth story when others don't because of its uh, late reopening. And uh, some people argue that the uh, the currency helps, which is uh, very weak at the moment. So we're at sort of 140, whereas in 2019, we averaged 109. Okay, so so for listeners who who, who are wondering how, how we're doing that uh, by earnings yield, we mean in effect the inverse of the PE ratio, don't we? That's that's really what drives the earnings yield. But you can't just compare earnings yields across different countries. You have to take it uh, take into account the difference in interest rates also between those countries. But what you're saying is that if you look at the earnings yield and compare it to say ten year bonds in Europe, uh, Asia, uh, the the US, it looks very attractive from a valuation perspective. Absolutely, yes. Excuse me for being nerdy. <clears throat> <laughs> it's all right. No, no, I just want to make sure that, you know, people are listening uh, are understanding um, what, we're, what we're saying here. And what about inflation? I mean, that inflation's accelerating, isn't it, in Japan? It's at a 40-year high, I think, now, isn't it? And also um, quite, quite a way above the Bank of Japan's um, targets. What, what's, the, what's the impact of this going to be? Yeah, I mean, I think people in, um, in the US and Europe say, that inflation doesn't uh, feel particularly large compared to what we've we've got in in our countries, and I suppose the answer to that is sure. But Japan hasn't had a pay rise in thirty years, so the rise in uh, in prices is really painful. The the BOJs try to uh, to make a, an argument that uh, inflation is a transitory and b um, imported, and for well over a year I've been arguing that it's neither. And I think in, in recent days, uh, BOJ Governor uh, Ueda has been um, admitting, yes, it's not as transitory as we thought it was, and it's um, more domestically driven than we uh, we thought it was. So he, he's coming around. Um, one feels that there's a, um, a political element in this. So uh, the, the government does seem to want to continue to spend like drunken sailors and says they don't want to, uh, to hike taxes. So please could you BOJ just print a little more, more for us. Obviously, uh, Japan knows better than pretty much anybody uh, the dangers of doing that with, with mm-hmm. what it did in the, uh, the 1930s. So I, I feel that we're getting to a point where um, the BOJ's got, got to take away the punch bowl. I think that increasingly it's been clear that the um, inflation we're getting in Japan is uh, the result of demographics that uh, are tightening uh, labor markets, rapidly tightening labor markets, are forcing um, wage hikes that we haven't seen since the early 90s. Um, and uh, the result is companies are passing that on because why couldn't, shouldn't they? Their, uh, their uh, real effective exchange rate is, is very weak indeed. So when you say the BOJ has got to take away the punch bowl and, and Governor Ueda is coming around to the idea, does that mean basically the end of this famous yield curve control? Well, I think it does. Um, 
I, I think the BOJ has a meeting at the end of this month. They're, they are tabled to uh, adjust their uh, inflation forecast at that point. Their uh, inflation point the forecast at this stage look a little bit la-la land. Um, and so um, just a smidgen of honesty would uh, result in them uh, revising them up uh, very considerably. And that feels like a, a sensible point for um, for taking away yield curve control. I mean, I think Reda has said, uh, we either take it away or we keep it. But uh, if we uh, fiddle with it, as we did on the 23rd of December, we attract um, laser beads on our forehead from every uh, speculator uh, globally. So I think the chances are that it's uh, taken away at, at that point. Uh, I think there are quite a lot of reasons for her for thinking so. Mm. So, so that's not the consensus forecast. I don't think is it in the markets where that uh, you know maybe yield control is going to curve control is going to remain for a while. But you think it could be gone within the next month or two? I think there. Are, um, I'm not particularly unusual in in thinking that uh, that that could happen. Um, I mean, I think the pushback you get from people on on the other side of the world is well, the Japanese take forever to decide on anything, uh, and. Um, and the answer is beware. Mm. So what will that mean for the markets? Because the last time the Bank of Japan adjusted their yield curve control, and they only made a small uh, tweak to it, it caused chaos in the markets, didn't it, really, in the bond markets and in the currency markets? Well, I think so. And this time, um, the chances are that it will be uh, an even bigger bang, uh, just because it's the real change, the uh, finally taking out yield curve control. Um, the yen will uh, strengthen. Um, one would have thought it'll, um, it'll overcompensate. So perhaps we see uh, 125, something like that. Um, mm. there, there are a lot of people in, in Asia X who think that Japan um, depends on a weak exchange rate to make any money. I think they'll be surprised. Um, they should look at data going a little bit further back before central banks uh, messed, with, uh, messed with the uh, interest rates. Um, I think the biggest shock is going to be when um, the uh, uh, the carry trade reverses. Um, that's an extremely large uh, trade. I think um, it has given cheap financing to people all over the world. Uh, who's going to be affected by it? I, I think in this particular case, it's been there for so long that um, you're not going to see who's been swimming naked until the tide goes out. Mm. So the, the yen, in effect, it, it's very strongly correlated, isn't it, with that yield differential between uh, the, the US and Japan. So I suppose, that, I mean, the yen's strengthening at the moment now from, uh, from what a, a seven, eight-month low. I suppose the risk is what people should be watching is this US inflation data tonight, because if, if that surprise is to the upside, then the yen goes back down again. Well, I think um, another way of looking at it, though, is that uh, the, the BOJ have been sitting there feeling very comfortable that, um, uh, that they're at the point of maximum strain, that the, that the, uh, the US won't hike anymore. And the Fed's been saying, well, I think there are probably two more hikes to go. Mm. Um, and so, you know, if it were done when it is done, then well, it were done quickly. They, uh, they really need to, to make this change kind of nowish. It's only going to get harder when um, 
when the 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 Fed gets further hikes, then you'll you'll see more pressure on the um, on the uh, Japanese bond market, on the uh, the currency market. You see the the yen weaken. There'll be uh, extreme frustration inside Japan about um, imported inflation becoming a, a, an issue at a time when. Wages aren't keeping up with it. It's understandable that uh, the Japanese voters say in their polls, uh, uh, criticizing Kishida, say it was cheek of you to um, to uh, have the Bank of Japan print money to drive up prices without any plan at all for, uh, for getting wages up. Now, the other thing that I finally want to ask you about, obviously, shareholder activism has been a big factor as well, hasn't it? Driving these gains, this name and shame campaign by the Tokyo Stock Exchange. We, we had a development, didn't we, I think, with Cosmo Energy. They stopped their largest shareholder from actually voting um, at, the, at the shareholder meeting, put a poison pill in it. Has that sort of knocked on the head a bit, um, the excitement over this shareholder activism? Well, I, I think it's going to bring some things to a, uh, to a point. So, um, excuse me for being a little bit geeky, but uh, the excuse they use for this is bringing something that exists in, in other countries to allow them to exclude one, um, one shareholder from the voting is the majority of the minority. Mm. Now, that's used in countries like the US when the buyer is the management themselves or someone uh, aligned with management, a management buyout. Um, and so, not surprisingly, other shareholders need um, need protection against the uh, the knowledge of inside buying. Um, this is the exact opposite. This is protecting management from its own shareholders. Uh, precisely what the uh, the law wasn't intended to do. So, this is going to be the uh, the acid test. Um, merging Cosmo uh, into a uh, a larger oil entity. Uh, which is what the uh, the activist is trying to do, is absolutely necessary and in line with what the uh, the ministers have been talking about about uh, making M and A easier. Mm. But will their hate for uh, for this particular activist be so large that uh, the legal case will uh, will go against him? If it does, I think it's uh, incredibly bad news for uh, for Jack. Japanese activism. Okay, but the upshot of all of this is that basically, I think what you're saying is really the Japanese market, Japanese stocks still look pretty attractive despite uh, the rally we've seen so far. I think so. I think they're um, they're pretty cheap, and they they have a growth story in terms of uh, of reopening. So lots of things to like about the market at the moment. That's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined by on the show by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group in Taipei. See you tomorrow. Money Talk 